Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we explore books of interest to anyone who enjoys folklore and speak with authors working with material in this area. The Book Club is part of the Folklore Network, striving to collect and preserve folklore material for the future. Everything is free, but if you can, please support our efforts at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast or visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can learn more. In today's episode, guest reviewer Carly Tremaine chats with Jenna Telendru about her book Blodewith, published by Moon Books. The title unpicks the complex and often misunderstood figure of Welsh law, exploring literature, folk practice and devotion in modern times. Jenna holds an MA in Celtic Studies from the University of Wales and a BA in Archaeology. She is also founder of the Sisterhood of Avalon and has been active in the goddess spirituality movement since 1986. Okay, so welcome everyone to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. Uh, My name is Carly Tremaine. Today we, very excited, are joined by Jenna Tellendrew. Um, author of Pagan Portals, Blodiwith, Welsh Goddess of Seasonal Sovereignty. Welcome. My first question, I just want to start off with how you first came across the story of Blodiwith and what really drew you to it. Well, I've always been a, um, a lover of mythology from when I was a very little girl. Um, and I found Welsh mythos uh, when I was an undergrad, actually. Um, so that's about 30 years ago. And, um, and I really, I really loved her story. It was um, quite meaty in a lot of different ways. And over the years, what it's meant to me has evolved um, as well. So it's, uh, so it's been a long relationship with that tale. Yes. Yeah. Mm, That kind of links with my second question. So I was, um, so how do you think the story, her story relates to people today sort of in comparison to how she related in comparison to no more the way it was perceived um in medieval Wales yeah how do you think that differs to how she's being perceived today well it's an interesting thing I think altogether with um the stories of the Mabinagi and a lot of the Welsh mythos because we only have them in written form in the medieval period but most scholars are sure that a lot of the threads that have been interwoven to create these tales are of much older origin. So there's a sense that over time, the story has evolved even uh, to become the form that we know it in the medieval time. Um, so there's a sense that there's, uh, these stories are meant to be alive. The, the Celts were very uh, reticent about writing anything down, especially having to do with their sacred things. So it wasn't until the medieval period that these stories moved from orality and uh, enter the written record. So there's a lot of precedent, I think, uh, to the evolution of the tales and what they mean over time. And I think the, the beauty of oral tradition is that it's living tradition. So it allows stories to evolve because uh, as each subsequent uh, generation tells the story, it takes on a different meaning. So to answer your question more directly, I think that um, Bladiwith is a, um, a res- she's received a lot of different strands of tradition to create the, the story and the figure that we know from medieval Wales. But um, I think at that point, she was uh, there to be a, um, an object lesson um, to, to, prov- to, to 
explore and to uh, demonstrate what happens when people, especially women, uh, try to uh, move out of their um, prescribed place in the world. She is meant to be a wife, beautiful, compliant, and silent. And when that no longer happened, then lots of shenanigans unfold from there. And in the end, she's punished for that, for her, um, uh, for her um, daring to um, dishonor the name of her husband. Um, So then I think she was an object lesson. And now I feel like uh, looking, and honestly, when I first encountered her story, I saw her as kind of a a feminist icon in a way. She exceeded the uh, prescribed uh, role that she had in society. She found her own agency. She found her own uh, voice and um, went for what it was that she wanted, what she desired. And in this case, it was a different man. But I think the the metaphor holds true. Uh, And so no matter the consequence of her actions, she moved forward and was punished for that. But how she was punished is she was a woman made of flowers to be a, a wife. And when she betrayed her husband, um, she was later punished and turned into an owl. So she holds on to this, um, you know, women's uh, sin when we're sexual, when we're uh, autonomous, more authentic, when we make our own choices. But she was turned into an owl, which to me is a symbol of wisdom, although... Mm to the Welsh, not so much. It was a symbol of death. It was a symbol, it was a portent of death. And it was a symbol of um, women's sexuality gone awry. Mm. Yeah, I remember you saying in the book, um, the owl kind of represents the the winter time, the, the death, the decay, the hunter. And I found that really powerful that she goes from this voiceless flower maiden to become this screeching huntress of the night that she really kind of comes into herself and um I think yeah it's really it's really beautiful duality um in the story in that actually there was a line you wrote uh let me just find it yes yeah um so between the chapters um you intersperse some of your own poetry in there gorgeous really beautiful Thank you. Um, no worries. One line you wrote. Um, it was now a bride's bouquet, now a maiden's funerary offering. And that really gorgeously captures the duality of Bladawa herself, you know, the, um, the union of dark and light that she represents. And I just find that fascinating. Um, if, if I may, oh, go ahead. No, you go. You go. I just want to speak to that particular line because um, that actually is part of the lore that is embedded in the symbolism of her. Because mm-hmm. one of the three flowers she's made of, she's made up of oak, broom, and meadowsweet when she's conjured to be the wife of Flynn. Um, meadowsweet is one of her components, and meadowsweet was often included in brides' bouquets, but ancient Welsh, I'm talking Bronze Age, um, burials in those same, in that same area, uh, uh, Snowdonia region, um, in, um, in, um, in Gwynedd, uh, they found um, meadowsweet in the, in the graves, in, as an offering to the dead. So it, it kind of straddles the line itself, that flower. So if those are the components that created her, she was intended to represent that duality. So I found that striking mm. as well. So just wanted to speak to that piece because... Um, no, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes you wonder about the original intent behind the story because obviously in medieval 
in the medieval times, um, like you said before, she was probably used as a warning uh, for women not to stray from their husbands, from their purpose. Um, but then I wondered if maybe before that um, it kind of spoke to more more similar to how we might perceive it today. So the power of womanhood, the power of um, creating life and, you know, being this, yeah, all-encompassing kind of bearer of life and death and everything it holds. In the book, you mentioned at the time there was a bit of a power struggle with um, matrilineal. Um, so I wondered if the story kind of reflected that kind of men's fear of women or men's awe of women. I think it is complicated. And I think you, I think you're right. It, you know, it draws upon a lot of different things. And I think anytime any one aspect um, of, of anyone, of, a, of, of the divine, of women, uh, is, is elevated over another, um, you know, the, the, the pure flower maiden is the ideal, but um, any other version of womanhood is, um, is, is forbidden. So yeah. there is that sense that when, you know, it creates an imbalance, whereas, um, you know, I talk about her being a, a sovereignty goddess, uh, yeah. a seasonal sovereignty goddess, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit, but uh, sovereignty goddesses have that dual nature. They are, uh, they are the embodiment of the land, and they are charged with protecting the land and nurturing the land and finding a rightful king to rule the land justly. And when injustice is being, is what he's practicing, she rescinds that, um, that uh, sovereignty, the bounty yes. of the land becomes fallow, becomes, um, becomes the wasteland. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it proceeds on. So she is both of those things. She's a giver of life and a taker of life mm -hmm. because it, she maintains the balance in nature. And it is unnatural to elevate one aspect and downplay the other. Yes. Then becomes fear. Then it becomes um, what is hidden in the dark, becomes part of the collective shadow and the yeah. personal shadow. Um, so while we're on the topic of Lodiwith as seasonal sovereignty, um, I wanted to know what made you decide to revisit her tale now and write, write this book, kind of portray her as, well, kind of dig into reasoning behind why she should be sort of placed as a seasonal goddess. So I, uh, I recently, well, I guess uh, in uh, 2015, I completed a master's degree program through the University of Wales. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so I wrote my thesis on creating... Um, an argument for Blodiwith as a seasonal sovereignty goddess. And um, it is very interesting because, you know, even from an academic perspective, there are so many, well, especially, there are so many things that support that idea. But when you see her mostly, and, and honestly, I think most people out of Wales probably um, have maybe have slid their eyes past a, a, a strange word and, you know, but I don't think many people uh, are as, um, uh, familiar with her and her tale outside of Wales, but it's, that's, yeah. it, and that's growing I think that's shifting and that's changing at least in the as mm. I run in but um, uh, you know it, it typically uh, they hold on to this sense of her only as being a dark a dark goddess a dark figure um, mm. as a uh, if you're just reading the myth straight as you know as a betraying harlot and you know uh, tried to kill her own husband um, you know she's not portrayed completely as a um, you know, th there is that imbalance again, but it's yeah. often to the other side. So I, I felt like um, 
it was really important to me to get this information out there to kind of reclaim I, what I think hints to what her true nature once was. But, and, um, and it just, uh, I had the opportunity and I'm so grateful to do it. So um, I had done all of this research. And so I kind of um, took a lot of that and, you know, presented it in a way that um, I think is more, is more generally um, uh, accessible then. Yeah. I think that's so important to do as well from a sort of folkloric perspective. It's so important that we look into these stories and kind of pick them apart in um, kind of in relation to the period that they were written or told or popular and kind of rethink the roles that the characters played. And it's like you said before, these stories are supposed to snowball. We're supposed to kind of add these new perspectives to it and alter it slightly. And I think, yeah, I think it's so important, especially something something like that, something to do with something as fiercely feminist <laughs> as Blood Iwood's Tale. It's so important to put this modern lens over it and kind of give her this, the duality that she deserves, frankly, you know, the, yeah, you mentioned in the book as well, um, there's some contention between whether she was actually legally married, like whether she was an adulteress. So, so that's part of the thing. I mean, I think anyone can pick up a copy of the Mabinongi and read her story. And with modern eyes, we're going to see particular things about her. And most people don't particularly like her and how she's betrayed in the story. But when we look, as you say, to look at it from a medieval context, it says all kinds of different things. So for example, um, there are several things in the Welsh laws of women that are uh, very clear about um, women's status in the world and her rights around marriage. And she has the right to refuse marriage. Um, so nowhere is Blodayev, first of all, or Blodayev, uh, as she's first known, shown giving her consent to her marriage, whereas other figures in the Mabinangi, it's very clear that they are involved in those decisions making. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, number one, might have been a red flag for the, for the uh, contemporary audience. The second piece of it, I think, is that um, in Wales, medieval Wales, there were nine forms, nine legal forms of marriage. And they all had different, um, you know, having to do with, you know, the degree of consent, did the family consent? Did just the woman consent? Did no one consent? Which is kind of a, a whole other thing as well. But, you know, who gets the who gets the dowry afterwards? Where are the, you know, in, in the divorce, which, which could happen? Who gets what afterwards? All of it was tied into one of these forms of marriage. And so um, in the story, Lodayev, um, her husband, Lel, is off, you know, circumambulating the land as lords did back then. Uh, she gives... Um, she offers hospitality of her of her hall to the neighboring lord um, who has been hunting long on her land uh, and they fall in love and they stay together and they sleep with each other for three nights in a row. And a medieval Welsh audience would recognize that as one of the forms of marriage they may have. So the idea that perhaps she did not give consent already gave a little bit of question about the legality for marriage to hell. And then the second piece of it is that that's exactly the kind of thing that would have led to uh, one of the nine forms of marriage, the marriage of the hedge, they call it, uh, or a, a secret elopement. And so, um, so already it, it casts an entirely different light on, uh, on these characters coming from that perspective. And unless you know this about medieval Welsh law, um, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that piece is completely lost, but it wouldn't need to be stated to the contemporary audience. So that's why it's so important to kind of look at it with the eyes of the past. What were they hearing? What was actually being told? 
in the story that we miss today. Mm, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so important to take these things into account when we're revisiting these stories. Um, there was another chapter where you talked about, bear with me. Mm-hmm. It was in Flowers of Devotion. Yeah, you talked about all of the different wildflowers that made up, um, correct me, Ladayev? Ladayev, right. Ladayev, so Ladayev yes. is flowers, and then flower. Ladayev is the name she gets when she turns into flower face, which is the owl. That the owl, yes, that was it. Yeah, so Ladayev, yeah, the flowers that make up Ladayev. You talked about from a more spiritual perspective, a way to connect with her as a goddess would be to gather these flowers, kind of make a mix. Um, I wondered if um, you have done that and if you've done it, if you noticed any kind of differences between the canonical three types of flower or the four nine, um, if you have a stronger connection from one or the other. Well, I have to say, I do prefer the canonical three, which is the oak broom and meadowsweet. And uh, I have made the nine and it did take me multiple years to collect all of these flowers because, uh, and, and so the nine that you're talking about comes from Robert Graves' uh, Haynes Bladiwith, which is in his uh, White Goddess book. And he talks a lot about the story of Bladiwith in there. I don't agree with a lot of what, what he has to say there. And he never gave any like reason for the flowers that he did add. So um, I, um, I tried to break that down, but that said, um, the practice itself was very empowering and deepening um, to collect them both. And what I found is that um, the, the nine blend smells very much like the three blend. It's as if oh. those flowers, it's a very heady, heady scent. Um, they overwhelm the other ones. So um, yeah. I, 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 I suggest that people try both, but my personal preference is that the, the three from the Mabinagi, from the fourth branch, uh, is the one mm-hmm. that I consistently use. But it was such a good um, practice to collect all nine. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, it sounds really, it sounds like a really beautiful kind of grounding, empowering um, thing to do. Just, just the even just the act of connecting with nature in that way, kind of grounding ourselves with the world again, um, is, is such a sort of transcendent thing. It's, yeah, it's so important. It's made from that. So it really gives mm. us a very, you know, specific doorway of connection there. And whether yeah. that's through the act of being in nature and finding those aspects of her, um, or, or, um, or, or just, connecting energetically with those flowers however however you want to do it I think um yeah I think you're absolutely right yeah gifted with this kind of formula um yeah yeah right there's something that you had mentioned earlier about uh the um the the tension uh between matriliney and patriliney and you know as encoded in the fourth branch because uh the story of Ariane Hrode is always is also in this branch um and she's Flel's mother and she's the reason why Bladiwith was created to begin with because she laid a, a destiny upon him a tinged saying that he could not marry a woman of the race of the earth and so a lot of people read this story and say what is Ariane's problem <laughs> right <laughs> but there's so many things in, in, encased in uh you know mother right and matriliney as um you know because that happens a lot in myth there are these mythic resonances of historical things or cultural changes that get embedded and over time the the meaning behind them you know gets diluted or lost as you know culture and or generation uh passes but um 
it's another way of uh, really kind of understanding, you know, the tension between uh, the, the masculine principle and the feminine principle or of the patriarchy and the, not really matriarchy, but patriarchy and matriarchy. I mean, yeah. women's rights were few, but they existed. And there mm-hmm. was a, a sense that they didn't want to give up those rights so easily. So just to speak to mm-hmm. that piece. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And for the perspective of myself, who had never come across the tale before, um, mm-hmm. reading reading your book, I never felt alienated from the story. You went into so much detail about the the historical elements behind it. It really kind of set the scene and kind of helped me understand who was what to who, what was going on. Mm-hmm. I did have to reread bits, but that's a lot to remember. Yeah. But it mm-hmm. was, really fascinating a really really interesting glimpse into a part of history I've never looked into before I'm glad to hear that yeah definitely any new readers (laughs) you'll be fine honestly I wondered oh I did wonder actually um because with the poetry aspect I wondered if you had any sort of background in creative writing or if that's an interest of yours as well it is and um it's interesting so um I'm I've been very fortunate to be able to travel to places yeah. uh, in um, from the stories in the Mabinogi, in the in the Welsh landscape to really connect in those places. And on my last journey there, I was making it a practice at every site to write in Inglenion, in, in, uh, which is a to write Inglenion, which are um, very specific Welsh poetry um, forms in English. Oh. Though unfortunately, I, I don't have um, fluency in Welsh at all. Um, <laughs> trying um yeah but at the dialect sites that it was a very the very constrained um nature of that form uh it, it wasn't having it and so these things just kind of came to me while it was in those places kind of a um a, a you know a kind of we, we say downloaded right but it's just like um you know flowing of consciousness down into these things kind of pulling stuff together um oh, yeah. so, uh, so it's it's I have found that to be and yes and yes I, I have I, I do do creative writing and I have mm-hmm. you know taken all of the things and so it is an interest of mine and it is something I have a passion for and uh, what I found is that it, it, it is a it is a useful um medium for me to kind of um receive right? A lot of people, okay. um, does that kind of make sense? I know it, it sounds a little woo-woo perhaps, but, no, no. Um, but the, just put it this way. So much of uh, Welsh tradition is centered on the idea of the Awen, uh, which yeah. is divine inspiration. And there are many ways that Awen is uh, manifested, but it's mostly manifested in, in the lore um, through the, the poetic art. Uh, it is that divine inspiration that comes through and the difference between, uh, you know, just some verses that rhyme and something that is empowering. And so and I'm yeah. not uh, by any means ascribing to any kind of conceit that I have received vast, you know, Taliesin, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of Owen, but but wow. being open to receive inspiration in in the small pieces, the small sparks that are, do reveal, and I find that being in those places are so is so inspirational. Um, you know, knowing the context, the way that the the myth has come to reside in the landscape is a yeah. powerful powerful thing. That the landscape still holds the resonances of those of those myths. That's one of the things I love so much about the Mabinogi is that you know where all of these things happened. You can go to yeah. them, to most of them. Uh, you can go to them, you can be in those spaces and it kind of gives you a different sense of the story, just you know, being in the land. So mm-hmm. it, it was very easy for those things to come through because it, it's just right for, you know, for me right there. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really powerful thing being in those spaces. And um, you really feel a connection to the history behind the tale. And, you know, you really remember that these were real people. These were tales that were told through word of mouth between all these different people all these many, many years ago. And we still have a connection to it now. And it's a really powerful, beautiful thing. And I think, honestly, the written word does have a lot of power in it. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, through, through that art, through that art form, we are kind of keeping this thread running throughout history um person to person tale to tale you know through different cultures as well that's our way of communication really through art through this kind of written spoken word music as well would come into that it's you know it's a really powerful thing to be able to do I agree and and, you know written written tales um they're wonderful because if they if stories are made in oral tradition and aren't recorded, they're lost to us. And we know that we've yeah. lost so much. But mm-hmm. so, th- so there's a bittersweet thing about being having these stories because in, in a sense, they've stopped growing in, in the way that they are. They've kind of become static in that moment. And so, of course, it tells us so much about the mindset and the people of that moment. But I think that the, the fact that the Celts kept these tales in oral tradition um, let, let me be specific, the Celtic Britons did, kept these things in oral tradition on purpose, yeah. you know, that they are alive. I think that we're, I think once we're grounded in what was, we can take that up and, and you know, I, I don't think they were meant to only say these things or only have these adventures or only be in these, you know, perceived in particular light. So, um, you know, they come alive again in certain ways. And, you know, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, through art and through poetry and through song, that's it's a powerful way to kind of take that a mantle of um, tradition and yeah. move it forward yeah yeah I completely agree with that yeah yeah and it's the same with the same with any any tale it's another way for the story to snowball into you know something that resonates year after year generation after generation it's really a powerful magical thing stories that we have I mean there there are sometimes different branches of tradition that have evolved but uh, one of the beauties of being in the landscape and and this is the thing I mean uh, people in Wales know their tales it is part of their cultural history so they may not be looking at this as a divinity or anything um, but they know that this is so so much a part of the soul of their of their of their people of their land of their language and so you learn from the people who are there Um, and so one of the reasons I love going into the landscape because you you meet local people who have pride what are you doing here walking in the, in the sheep field while we're interested <laughs> in part of the story they're like wow and they're you know, so happy that you know so um so w- one trip into blood island's land we we went to see lekranu which is that um holy stone from the end of the story yeah, yeah you mentioned right. that in the book yeah Right. There's a really wonderful kind of onomastic tale about, you know, this strange upright stone with a hole in it that is interwoven into the tale. And so we went to go visit it and, um, you know, be in that space. And a woman who lived nearby came uh, and she she was just, um, you know, talking with us. And anyway, she she pointed out the hills. She pointed out she knew the story. And she said that there was locally. So this is not something I've come across anywhere in, in written lore, or any, you know, folkloric compilations. Any, uh, she was saying that there is a farmer who's, um, who's, whose land kind of um, abuts this particular hill where Granu, which is the lover of Ladaiwith, emerges to shoot his... Um, I guess it's not a shoot, it's a cast, his uh, spear, that flow. And he said, she said that every year, and this is a, a, a tradition in the family, there is a corner of their, of their field that they do not harvest. They always leave oh. it there as an offering to Granu. 
Yeah, right? I'm sure, right, right. I'm sure <laughs> these incredible. are church going, you know, um, you know, proper, all of the things that you'd expect. Mm. And they yes. kept that tradition. It was part of their folk practice. And no one questioned mm. it because it was just part of the landscape. It is what you did. You honored Granu with that. Mm. And I love that. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful kind of raw aspect of humanity, you know, that we do hold this ancient connection to the land around us. And whether we kind of act on it or not, it is always there, you know? And it's so wonderful to kind of go to these places and hear these different stories and see how different people are keeping these traditions alive. It's so magical. (laughs) I think they all rise up, you know, getting outside of, you know, religion or anything like that. It's Mm -hmm. the stories describe a way of being in relationship with the land. And if you are living in a particular place that has a particular environment and you're practicing agriculture, for example, it's no question, you, you know, what, regardless of the trappings, these are symbols and stories that teach people how to be in right relationship with their land, what is required of them. And however, if you want to look at it as superstition or as folk, uh, as folk practice, or, you know, as something very spiritual, uh, it doesn't matter because those symbols remain and that mm-hmm. balance is kept by honoring these, these stories that teach how to be in balanced and in right relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. It's, yeah, it doesn't matter from which angle you look at it, like you said, folklore, religion, spirituality, whichever. It's this one thing that kind of unites all of us and keeps us all grounded, you know, our relationship with the land and our connection with nature. And yeah, um, I love that. And I was wondering um, how you think the story of blood eye with or blood eye with as a goddess if you know the act of embracing blood eye with as a goddess how that could help the modern woman how mm. we're going to resonate with that today well i think um i think a lot um yeah. because Good. as a <laughs> seasonal sovereignty goddess what is she she's teaching us that we have both because for me to understand her, you have to understand and integrate both sides of her, the light yeah. and the shadow, the flower and the owl, um, the winter and the summer. And we have to do the same thing for ourselves, right? We have to honor and respect all aspects of ourselves, the stuff that we're proud of and the stuff that perhaps we'd like to change about ourselves, the things that we've accomplished and perhaps the things that have been painful that we've had to let go of, things that have caused us grief, things that have caused us pain, trauma, those kinds of things. And to integrate those things and to see that we have different tools for different times right we can be the flower we can be following the the track of the sun we can open with fragrance into a fertile relationship with ourselves right because that's what flowers are they are they are the the fertility of of the spirit of the soul of the land um and then the owl part is this part where we need to go into those darkness those dark places, those places we fear to tread, even if it's moving forward in a positive way. I, I, I daren't try to become the person I want to be, to, uh, to pursue a dream, to pursue a gift. But she teaches, no, you are flowers, but you're also an owl. You have the, mm-hmm. the, the, the strength of these talons. You have the unerring sight to pierce the darkness, the illusion, stuff that wants to take us off our mark and get what it is that we wish. So we have both aspects of ourselves. And I think that's a powerful lesson that she, she gives to us. Yes, there is risk whenever we 
pursue the path that we feel drawn to pursue to follow our desires. Um, mm. But the, the rewards are great. The rewards are great, even if we are you know, she's alone, but she's whole in her aloneness as her, as the owl. Um, She has, you know, she's um, mastery over the night. Right. And she, Mm. she wisdom and the ability to fly where she will. So to me, uh, you know, at the end of the tale, um, and and I felt this from the beginning uh, before I got into, you know, like 30 years ago, before I really understood so much of the contemporary context, you know, when Gwydion turns Blidiwith into an owl, I was like, don't, don't threaten me with a good time, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like a bad thing. This is actually pretty good. Um, So I think, I think that that's that for, for, you know, so you asked for in terms of modern woman, but I think that there's, it's, it's, it's a broader um, lesson as well. I think that Mm. anyone uh, can, can, um, what is the word? I mean, obviously women have a, have a particular fight against patriarchal constructs, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of us are in, uh, you know, the overculture trying to put us into particular boxes that we want. I agree. To yeah. 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 Yes. And, and further, I think that it t- teaches us something about how we should be in relationship, as we said, with, with, with the land and with the earth, the, you know, yeah. sovereignty goddesses in the end are about our connection and relationship with the landscape, whether that's our inner landscapes or the outer landscape. And so, you know, one of the things, and I've done a lot of study uh, with various sovereignty goddesses, and I think that, you know, it, it seems very um, timely for me because we are not in right relationship collectively as humanity with our planet. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing questions of that that withdrawal of of um of, of the fertility of the land and you know here, yes. comes the, here comes the wasteland here comes you know climate change and all of you know all of the things that you know we're seeing in our world right now it's on fire there's a plague there's all of the, we need yes. to get back to a balanced relationship and these stories kind of show us how in a way yeah yeah exactly that's the power behind these stories they remind us that we need to embrace the light as well as the darkness understanding that you know with the coming of winter we're not necessarily losing the possibility of spring I guess Mm, beautifully said it reminds us that um everything is cyclical you know everything Mm. everything will continue (laughs) no matter what and it's about embracing the dark as well as the light and you know yeah I think I think it's yeah I think it's a really powerful way to remind us to connect with the earth and ourselves in that way and And to empower because you know speaking again as a woman in a in a patriarchal society um you know the what woman is what is elevated in our society is young beautiful you know a woman of a, of a certain type but when you're a yeah. woman past that time you know we see this all the time in hollywood how you know women over 40 have difficulty yeah. getting these roles but it doesn't matter how old a man is right so there's yeah. a sense we're, we're unconsciously um you know programmed to believe you know life ends after you know i i i I fulfill my role within the context of the patriarchal gaze, right? If I'm not young, if I'm not, you know, fertile and all of those things. And Mm -hmm. I think reclaiming the darkness, reclaiming the power of the night, all the things that have been shoved in there and associated in a negative way with the feminine, the feminine that cannot be controlled by the overculture, right? Mm -hmm. That's so much of what is, you know, kind of being stuffed down in there. There's a power to say, you know, yeah, I'm no longer that, but now I'm this. And I I am on my own terms. I am powerful. I am focused. I, you know, have the tools to have and, you know, be what I want. And if that means, uh, you know, 
the overculture is uh, no longer in support of who I am, yeah. you know, if I'm rejected, it doesn't matter because I'm whole within myself. So there is that piece okay. as well, like that there's cyclic nature. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we can still ride that wheel of, you know, uh, of uh, light and dark and, yeah. you know, yeah. renewal and, and, and fail and fade away, but also to embrace where we are within the context of the whole cycle and see that as sacred and worthy and powerful as well. Yeah, yeah, and understand that kind of being uh, being in one part of the cycle does not diminish the other, you know, the fact that when we reach our L stage, <laughs> we still hold this flower goddess stage. Mm-hmm. Well said. All of that, all of that. I found it, I think you mentioned this in your book as well, I found it really interesting that um, when Blood Iwith is transformed into the owl, that they... Oh, they didn't actually say what type of owl she was, was it? But I think it's pretty heavily implied the barn owl, the flower face, that the she was transformed into this really beautiful, quite delicate, but sharp creature. Yeah, so I wonder if that's something to do with um, the period it was written in as well, if that's kind of a nod towards not making her a villain as such. Um, it's interesting to say, yes, I, I mean, I've always seen her as a barn owl and, uh, you know, I did a Mm -hmm. kind of informal survey and a lot of people do, but the word is actually just, you know, a collective word for owl in in the tradition. So, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's hinted towards that. Although uh, other, other contemporary stories um, like uh, the uh, David Upwillam is a um, uh, kind of mostly contemporary medieval poet. And he talks about, um, he calls, uh, the owl uh, Gwyn's bird and the sound that he writes there might be that of a uh, of a uh, gosh what is it a tawny owl it means it has a oh, yeah. thought but that said I think um you know by the time you know again so much about the fourth branch is about this place of transitions mm. right so earlier you know we see the owl in other stories you know of the Mabinagi for example are associated so Colk and Olwyn the owl is one of the um one of the the uh, the uh, five um, oldest animals, so it kind of has this like ancestral kind of totemic sense to yeah. it, and um, you know it's a wise uh, advisor that you know was sought. So there is a sense of in the past it had a positive uh, um, sense, and that even the ancient Celtic, uh, you know, the Iron Age Celts, you know, in- integrated owls in their sacred objects, and so there was a sense of that movement. But the medieval period is that time of shift because not long after this, are all, we have all of these uh, stories and folklore about, um, you know, owls. If you hear a barn, and specifically again, a barn owl, if you hear yeah. a barn owl uh, screech in a, in a village, that means a woman has lost her virginity outside mm-hmm. of marriage. Yeah. He begins to hold this sense of illicit sexuality. And so uh, I think both of those are kind of commingled in this sense with, with uh, Lodiris. And then it even gets worse because then she becomes associated with witchcraft and, you know, curses and all kinds of things. So there is a, you know, the owl holds so much of what has been historically associated with the feminine. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing how that kind of shifts over time. And, and I think tracing that is, again, uh, it underscores the sense that, you know, cultural perspectives on women, cultural perspectives on women's sexuality, cultural perspectives on, you know, the, you know, the power of the night, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shifts over time. Uh, and, and those symbols, I think, are, though, are big enough to hold all of that. That's the beauty yeah. of it. So we can we see how the that symbolism has shifted and the meaning has shifted in time. And so I think that that kind of gives us permission to be able to, or or at least sets us up to be able to um, 
you know, see these stories and these symbols with modern eyes and find meaning in it. And not necessarily that we want to ascribe meaning, but we have a cultural sense of what these things mean uh, it, from our own context. And so I don't think it's wrong to read the stories from a cultural context and receive wisdom and insight from it. But it's also interesting to, to try to, as we spoke about earlier, look at things from that specific cultural context to understand a little bit more about the people yeah. whose story this is, right? Yeah, it's fascinating because there's so much to learn uh, just by kind of looking into the differences between the way they use certain symbols and the way we use it today. Mm-hmm. Some of the similarities, it's fascinating how that can kind of carry on through throughout history. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, so I think my next question would be, do you have any other projects coming up? Do you have any more books you're writing? So thank you for asking. Um, so I have written another book for this Pagan Portal series on Hriana. So it does kind of the same thing with her stories, um, it, it, you know, putting it in cultural context and all that. And that, that, that published a few years ago. Uh, and I am actually working on, um, so aside from these, these standalone goddess books that I've been doing, I, I write books on about Avalon, um, the, the, yes. the, the mythos of Avalon and a lot of the, uh, the Welsh um, deities and so I am working on a a third Avalon book uh, that um, I think will be out next year so I have to have the the manuscript in a couple of months so uh, working really hard on that so uh, yeah thank you for asking it's it's beautiful to look at these stories and just really kind of um, you know I feel because I have a foot in the academic and another foot in the spiritual to the bridge between the two of them I think one has to inform the other Right. And so uh, to bring the balance of that and uh, it, to to readers who wouldn't perhaps not necessarily know, perhaps even to look uh, at older sources or to, to look up the other, um, you know, the, the contextual things. And then, you know, to even get into the world of academia and all of the, the stuff. So to bring that in, in, in you know, to, to inform other people's practice and other people's perceptions and other people's ability to um, come into relationship with these tales, um, yeah. which can be daunting to pick up something if you're a non-Welsh speaker. And I get this all the time, which is why I said earlier, don't be afraid of the Welsh, because, you know, you look at, and uh, please forgive me, I just want to show this. I mean, yeah. that is a difficult word. And a lot of the names for non-Welsh speakers uh, are um, are difficult to remember and they're difficult oh, yeah. to announce and, uh, and and a lot of people you know and some of the stories that are uh, um you know in the tales that are available online or older translations so you're already um you know kind of trying to get through some archaic english language much less to get to the to the welsh piece um so it can be kind of daunting and i think that uh i'm excited personally that there is this expansion of interest in uh in these tales um from this from this culture i mean i'm not even of the culture but i have such a deep uh love and respect for it and um and i've been um I've just been I've just been blessed with uh, uh, these opportunities to yeah. um, reflect that. Yeah, yeah, and that really comes through in your writing as well. The passion really comes through. I go, I keep harping on about it, but I really love the poetry. Like, <laughs> so so beautiful, really well written, and yeah, like like I've mentioned before. Um, not only had I not come across Blood Iwood's tale before, I hadn't. I don't, I don't really know anything about any Welsh culture. So going 
sort of reading the book and coming across all these characters I've never heard of, these names I've never come across before, it, it can be daunting. It definitely can be. But if you sort of the way you've approached it kind of academically, it's a really good way to kind of bring it into popular culture, I guess, because you break it down, you kind of give us, um, you gave us pronunciations for Blood Eyeworth, which helped. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a good way to kind of introduce us to these characters and what they meant at the time and what they mean in relationship to each other. So mm-hmm. hmm. yeah, really good introduction. Thank you. And that, that was my hope because by nature, these Pagan Portal series books are very slim. So you have to yeah. kind of get in there and say the thing and then get out. Um, yeah. and, and that's my hope that I at least provide enough of a foundation and a, 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 a way forward so that people can, you know, find the next step and, you know, mm. see you know, the older, you know, wh- where else to look. Yeah, that's something I enjoyed as well. I particularly liked the, the section uh, where you delved into... Um, all of Blood Eyewood's flowers and kind of all their properties and mm-hmm. the folkloric meaning and the medici- medicinal uses of them. And yeah, and you kind of gave me just enough tantalizing knowledge there and then kind of gave us room to go out and seek for ourselves. Um, so I think, I think that's about everything. That's about everything I had written down to ask. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Yeah, just um, just to say that um, it might be odd for someone with my accent to be uh, speaking about, uh, you know, Welsh traditions. And um, I think it's important that when we are engaging with this work, that we do our best to, um, you know, for people outside of the culture to and I, and, and I touched upon it, I think, throughout this conversation to to take it from the perspective of the culture, to listen to the people who are, who are present, to hear their stories, to you know, do our best to, you know, culture is a practice in my opinion. It's not you know, necessarily a heritage mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, like there are people in, in the United States, it means something different when people say, well, I'm Italian or I'm Welsh or I'm French. We're, yeah. we're of d- that descent, even though we're culturally American. And sometimes there's a conflation between the two. Um, so there's a sense that, although I, I don't have any Welsh, heritage at all either but uh that we have to understand that um um the the cultures can be approached in a way that is that is honor um that honors the people especially the still living people um that uh that listens to their voices and that receives and that was my my intention when i when i undertook the master's program at the university of wales i wanted to learn from the the people whose culture this was and and it in his um amplified uh, my understanding greatly and i'm and i'm very grateful for that but and i just want to be um I just want to take that moment to say that it's important for us to give back and to honor the cultures that we receive um, inspiration from to yeah. uh, listen to native voices and, um, and to listen mm. is the big piece. Right. So anyway, just yeah. that little piece of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. Uh, culture itself. There's, there's so many gray areas, especially, especially in these times. There's so so many kind of thin lines um but I think as long as we have a genuine interest and passion to a subject and we approach it respectfully and you know like like you mentioned about actually visiting the places talking to the people you know understanding that 
you might not be of the culture, but if you're passionate and you're respectful about it, it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing to learn it and pass it on to other cultures and to kind of make it grow again. Mm, so, yeah, I completely, I think you've done it very well in this one. I liked it. <laughs> you're very kind I appreciate that very much all right fantastic so thank you so much thank you so much for talking with us today Um, it has been my pleasure and I'm truly appreciative thank you oh no problem all right so you can pick up a copy of Pagan Portals Blood Eyewith at any good book retailers um it's only 130 odd pages 135 ish so a nice little bite-sized way into the subject if you're interested Thanks to Jenna for joining us to discuss her book, and to Carly for leading the discussion. I hope you can join us again soon for more from the Folklore Podcast and the Book Club. If you want to get in touch, please email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at FolklorePod. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>